For the month of April, year seems like the year is getting by so quick. For the month of April, we're going to be talking about the passion of Christ. The passion of Christ. And as I thought about this, I realized that it's easy to talk about David and Samson and so many different people of the Bible, but the most difficult, and I haven't even started, is to talk about Jesus. How do we even, and the little Bible history, you know that in the beginning, God's name was made without vowels in it. It could not be pronounced. It was so sacred. They, they didn't feel themselves worthy to even say his name. How do we feel even worthy to call on the name of Jesus? But we're going to start on today. If this sermon series could be a meal, and I talked about food a little bit earlier. If it were to be a 21 course meal, this would merely be a sniff, not even a taste of the goodness and the nutrition and everything that we can get from the Lord's life in his ministry. In John chapter 21, verse 25, and let me, let me say this as well. We try to teach and use a flow. But because there's so many things that we can say about Jesus, that on today, I'm just going to be hitting some points. So if you're taking notes, or you have the church app, and we encourage you, Go to, this, go to the uh, Play Store and, and download Open Altar Worship Center, the app, and all the notes are there. But I'm going to be just hitting on some points, so it's really important that you kind of pay attention because it's hard to cover Jesus. It is such a monumental thing. But in John chapter 21, verse 25, and I'm using the New King James Version, if you want to use your own Bible, whatever version you use. And it says, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which they, if they were written one by one, I suppose that not even the world, not the Smithsonian, but not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. Amen. And if you consider everything that Jesus did from Genesis to Revelation, even that period at the end of Amen. It's just a small thing compared to all the works he did. By today's standards, Jesus, even by those standards, Jesus only lived to be 33 and a half years old. But in my opinion, Jesus wasn't supposed to die this way. He wasn't supposed to die this way. He was the king of king and the Lord of lords. He wasn't in battle fighting for his own life and fell on his sword like Saul did. Jesus didn't live to be 965 years old like Noah did or 365 years before Enoch just walked with the Lord. Enoch didn't even die. He just walked with the Lord and he was no more. He didn't even live to be 70 like his like David. Jesus only lived to be about 33 years old, but instead he willingly came into this world, took on our sins with the only weapon were his words. And yet he died a criminal's death. He is often referred to 
himself as being the son of God throughout the Gospels. He's referred to as being the son of God. But how can he say that me, I and the father am one? How can that be? John chapter one, verse two. He says in the beginning, he was, excuse me, he was in the beginning with God. He was in the beginning with God and is talking about John. Then in verse 15. Says John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, this is he speaking, Jesus, of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. He was before me. Jesus existed long before he came. So how is it that we can say that Jesus and the father are one? And oftentimes I've heard the example and I've used it myself and it's not wrong. I am a husband. I am a son. I am a brother. And those are titles, regardless of being who I am at this church or who I am at work. That's who I am. But the Lord gave me another illustration, looking at Mark chapter 10, verse 7. And again, all of these scriptures are coming from the King James, New King James Version. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become what? One flesh. So they then are no longer two, but one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Pastor Wendy and I, I'm Robert. She is Wendy. But the Bible says, and heaven looks down of us and says, you are no longer two, but you are one flesh. So likewise, in heaven, Jesus, the son of God, is God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. They are three, but they are still as one. Do you all understand that? So the three are as one. So so as is in marriage on earth, so as is the deity that is in heaven. So why only three and a half years? Three and a half years really doesn't seem like a long time unless it's three and a half years till you turn 16. Three and a half years till you get your driver's license. Three and a half years until you can retire. Three and a half years is really not a lot of time. But to do that and also impact the entire world, even by today's standards, that's a phenomenal task. In John chapter nine, verse four. Jesus said, I must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. So Jesus could only work while it's day. Well, Jesus's day was while he was here on earth. That was his daytime. He wasn't talking about the physical light of day because back in that time, the only thing you could do at night was by torches or by candles. Needless to say, when the sun went down, I'm sure they went to bed shortly thereafter. But there were times when Jesus, and if you look in the Bible, I'm not going to get into it, but there were times when Jesus did things at nighttime. When Jesus walked on the water, he walked at nighttime. Oftentimes when Jesus would sail from one place to another, he would do it at nighttime. Why? He used the resources he had. Who was that? Peter, a fisherman. 
And if you think about it, I'm going to I'm going to go away, spend time with the father, use this time while you all are up steering this ship across the water. So tomorrow when I get up, I can preach. Jesus wasn't tired. He maximized his time. He had to work while it was day. Because when nighttime comes, no man can work. So what's our nighttime? God knows we have problems. We have struggle. There are going to be things that you have to deal with. And that's your nighttime. I spoke with a young lady yesterday and she's she's struggling. She's saying, I just lost my job. Her job just shut down. And God knows the Lord says, I've been touched with every feeling of your infirmity. I know how you feel. I've been through what you've been through. Not that Jesus held down the nine to five, but I also know you're going to have your night times and you can't work while it's night. And some of us can. And I won't say us, some of us, not me. We can work while it's night. There are going to be hard times. You might lose your job, but it's kind of hard to walk up to somebody and say, glory, hallelujah, I just lost my job. How are you doing today? Glory be to God, I am unemployed. Woohoo! Three-day weekend. No. But once you dust yourself off, it becomes daylight. Lord, if you, if you got me up to this point, you're going to get me through this point. Yay, do I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. I will fear no evil. So my next point, and, and, and again, I'm, y'all, I'm just touching things because it's hard to talk about Jesus. Why four Gospels? The number four stands for creation. The number four represents creation. So why four Gospels? Why not have all 12 of them to write? Well, what do you think Jesus, what Judas would write in his gospel? <laughs> the Lord gives and the Lord gives. Matthew. Matthew begins by talking about the genealogies and the history of Jesus. He also targets the Hebrew people. And granted, we have to remember, it's not these men who are writing. It is the Holy Spirit who has inspired them. To write, And they are only recording as God and the Holy Spirit have leading them. So we can't put in there saying, oh, well, that's just man. Okay, well, fine. You don't mind just working for man because you don't mind a man paying you. So understand a man wrote this down, but he did it according as the Lord led him. Matthew is the only gospel that contains the beatitude. Luke is the only one that mentions Jesus as a little boy. At 12 years old, John, as I have said before, is the only of the Gospels that does not have any parables. Mark, on the other hand, Mark is targeting a Gentile audience, but he refuses to get into all the specifics of the genealogies because he understands who it is he's trying to reach. So not to create conflict, he says, I'm not going to talk about those things. Luke is considered to be a great historian. If you ever read some of the chapters in Luke, They're a lot longer than the other Gospels because he is a great historian and he wants to put as many details in there as possible. And the first three of the Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels, Synoptic Gospels, meaning similar. And they tell often the same stories. John, on the other hand, and Luke, excuse me, and Luke is the only 
Gentile writer in the entire New Testament. He is the only Gentile writer in the entire New Testament. And then John by himself writes again the same story beginning with the creation and telling of the Son of Man. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God seems to be so untouchable, fierce, ready to deal out his wrath on those who do not obey his commands. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 12. And you shall set bounds, and he's speaking to Moses, all around saying, take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be what? Put to death. Just by touching the mountain. Is that the kind of God you want to serve? No, I don't. No, I don't. I didn't. I saw two heads shaking. (laughs) There's a white line. There's a traffic light and there's a white line. The city is telling you don't cross that white line while the light is red. But how many people cross the white line? So what if every time you cross the white line, you got a ticket? It's like, but I didn't go through the light, but you crossed the white line. (laughs) Newsflash, 55 is not a suggestion. It is the speed limit. It is the speed limit. You are not to drive over 55 miles an hour. Help me, Jesus. (laughs) How many of us, if that were the true law in the word of God, would be guilty? And we're going to be guilty going home. (laughs) You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And I promise you this. Number one, Pastor Robert Spady is guilty of breaking these laws. And if man puts it in place, God honors what man says. We think that we can sometimes think, well, it's like, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a child of God. I don't don't have to obey. Yes, you do. When we break the laws of the land, we'll answer to man, and then we'll answer to God. If you do what God says, you will only answer to God. Man will question you, but you'll only answer to God. That was not in my notes. But it was God's decision to give man another chance. God sent, excuse me, God created Adam, the first living creature. He gave him everything he needed. He gave him a garden. And yes, he told him to work the garden. So work is not something because of sin. It was something God commanded from the very beginning. Gave him everything he needed. Peace, quiet, a beautiful wife. And Adam blew it. Adam blew it. But to his defense, who did Adam have as a role model? He didn't. He had perfect peace with God, but he had no role model. Confess your faults one to another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much. Iron sharpens iron. So the countenance of one man sharpens another. 
But Adam didn't have anybody. But God says, you know, I love you so much. I created you. I'm taking you back. I'm going back to court and I'm using my son's blood to pay the price. God sent Jesus in the flesh to live among us as a perfect example, never allowing him to slip or sin, but to the ultimate level of obedience. Philippians chapter eight or excuse me, Philippians chapter two, verse eight. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself. And became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He was obedient, even to death on the cross. So how could God allow Abel to be killed, slain by his own brother? He's like, Abel, yes. Abel offered a sacrifice unto God and his brother couldn't stand him, so his brother killed him. Or Zechariah. In Second Chronicles chapter 24, also died for the sake of the gospel. How could you allow these men to die for the gospel, but not your own son? Is Jesus too good? No, that's not a question at all. It is never a prerequisite in order to enter into God's riches and glory and to receive into heaven. Millions have suffered at the hands of misguided men. Millions. And as we prayed this morning, people are suffering right now over in these foreign countries because of their faith in the gospel. But to die these types of death is not a prerequisite to enter into heaven. God says through the the apostle Paul, I beseech you, brothers, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, because for most of us, you're worth more to God alive than you are in the grave. Because I can witness to two or three people a day or however many God gives you, show a little love or do something. I can do that while I'm living. So our death is not the sacrifice God is looking for. Because the greatest death that we will ever have to deal with is dying to self. That is the greatest death we will deal with in our lives. It's not that God didn't love his people, but during that era, which was known as the law. During the times of the law. God dealt with people differently, but Jesus drew people by love and kindness. For those who knew him and followed him, his approach and his callings were fascinating. When he told Peter to cast his nets on the other side in Luke chapter five. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, when he saw all that came in, and this is where, if you read in this chapter where it says Peter had to call his partners to help him to pull in. That's why we call people our partners, because you all are helping us to pull this in. I can witness to people, and you can too. I can invite people to church, and you can too. And we all play a role in building the kingdom. But when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Why are you saying this, Peter? Well, if you notice, Peter is a man who has a little bit of a temper. They came to arrest Jesus, and what did he do? He pulled out his sword and cut Malchus' ear off. 
<laughs> Come on now. Jesus told you this was going to happen. That he would be arrested and that he would be tortured and hung on a cross and die for our sins. And Peter says, no, this will not happen. And Jesus had to tell him, depart from me, Satan. Get behind me. But why would he say then, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man? Maybe it's written somewhere, but I didn't find it. But let's just use our imagination. Peter's fishing all night long, and he's like, you know something, boys? If y'all don't catch some fish, there's going to be a price to pay tonight. Somebody's getting fired. I'm throwing you off the boat, and you can go find the fish yourself. I don't care how far we are from the shore, you're swimming back. (laughs) And they toiled all night long and didn't catch a thing. But with love and kindness, Jesus just said, throw your nets out again. And they pull in all these fish. How would you feel? When you know you haven't walked the wall, when I know that I haven't done the thing that God has done, told me to do. As Paul said, the thing that I would do, that I don't. And the thing that I shouldn't do, that's what I do. And then it's the goodness of God that leads me to repentance. In John chapter 1, verse 48. Nathaniel said, how do you know me? How do you, how is it you know me? And Jesus answered, I said unto him and said unto him, before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree and I saw you. Before you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Wherever it is you are, God sees you. Lord, I'm trying, I'm trying to make this thing work. I've been working at it all my life, and it's just not working. And the Lord calls you. You know everything you were doing, all those mistakes you made? Well, I'm going to make those mistakes work in your favor. You thought that that was a waste of your time? It wasn't a waste of your time. (laughs) You know, we have to be careful what we say about ourselves. And what we say about other people. And, I, and look, trust me, I love to have a good time. I love to laugh. I love to joke. I love to irritate Pastor Wendy. <laughs> that is my purpose in life. But I realized the other day, I'm a wimp. I'm nothing but a wimp. I don't, I'm not going to tell you who you are, but I realize I'm a wimp. You know what a wimp is? I'm a work in, I'm a work in the master's process. I'm just a, a work in the master's process. He's trying to accomplish things, but without him, I have no strength. Because he's my strength like no other. Thanks, Brother Gabe, for singing that today. Hallelujah. Y'all getting anything out of this? Yes. And again, it's, it's, it's hard to talk about Jesus. But wherever it is, wherever you are, Jesus knows where to send your mail. And I say that over and over again. Mail gets, I mean, Pastor Winnie and I have been in our house for over four years now, and we're still getting mail from the people that used to live there before us. 
But wherever it is you are, God knows where to send you a mail. Jesus is often called, or Jesus referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as the last Adam. He is the last Adam. And so it is written. The first Adam, the first man Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first. How is that? How is it that the spiritual is not first, but rather the natural and afterwards the spiritual? The first man was of the earth made of dust. The second man, the Lord of heaven. So how is it that Jesus is the last Adam? The first Adam was one of creation. The second Adam, or excuse me, the last Adam was he that of redemption. God gave man a second chance. I don't care what happened, who failed, who succeeded. I'm going back to court, as I said before, and I'm doing this the legal way. The first one being of creation. The second one of redemption. There was an age of innocence when Adam was born, when Adam was created, excuse me. And Jesus also displayed that very same innocence, but yet without sin. So now let me actually give you some some virtues of Jesus. First of all, Jesus was pure. Jesus was the epitome of pure. And the opposite of being pure is lustful. Have you ever seen a picture of Jesus? Anybody ever here seen a picture? Nobody? Come on, y'all. Don't get super deep on me now. Anybody seen a picture of Jesus? Yes. Now, no matter how you draw him, Jesus was a good-looking man. He was a good-looking man. I mean, my dad used to always get on me because I never kept my hair combed. So the only time, quality time we had was going to the barbershop. I had to wait until I joined the army to grow an afro. And then put it, tuck it all up underneath my head. But Jesus had that long hair and a beard, and I'm trying to grow a beard, but I can't get past like three or four days. It itches so bad. In Luke chapter 8, verse 2, and certain women who had been, excuse me, certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out out of whom had come seven demons. And Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod Stewart, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. When, de- when Jesus delivers you from something that you've been through and you know it's God, don't you want to give back to God out of your substance? And let's just set the record straight because the devil is a liar. Jesus won't mess with none of these women. Jesus did not mess with these women. But because of his virtues, because he was pure in heart, because Peter says, excuse me. First Peter chapter chapter one. But with the precious blood of Christ as of lamb without blemish and without spot. First John chapter three. Verse five. 
And you know that he was manifest to take away the sins of the world. And in him, there was no sin. And in Matthew chapter five, verse eight, he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Jesus was pure in everything he did. And even being the son of God, Jesus took time to pray. Because he had to have that relationship with the father. And Jesus was not one to hang out with the lawyers and all of the elites of society. But he made it a point to hang out with the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, the down and outs. He made friends with the sinners and he was scalded and talked about for doing those very things. If we are to win over the world, we have to love the world before they come to Christ. And not after. We have to learn to love them before they come to Christ. God loved you where you were. But you can't love somebody else where they are. How many of us ride through the neighborhood and lock our doors? Every day. We set our alarms on our houses. Now, I understand using wisdom because we live in a different time. But if somebody looks at you different. What's our reaction? But how are you looking at God? We wonder how people are looking at us, but how are you looking at God? Jesus was peaceable. Now, opposite of being peaceable is being fussy. Jesus discouraged competition. When his disciples came and asked, well, which of them is the greatest? Which of us, Lord, do you love the most? In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I didn't come to compete with anybody else. I don't have to. Let the words that I speak and let everything that I say tell you about who I really am. Number four, Jesus was entreatable. What does entreat? Entreat means to ask someone anxiously and repeatedly for something that you want to entreat them. Excuse me, would you come here, please? You are entreating them. You're asking them to come. This is a quality of wisdom. Even though we want to be entreatable, the last thing we want to be is a yes man. Nobody likes a yes man. Maybe that makes us look good because we've got 14 people who agree with us, but they really don't like you. you they only know that there are benefits to agreeing with you, whether it's a monetary thing or it's a social thing. Oh, I'm hanging out with so-and-so. But what do you believe? I believe I should keep saying yes if I want to stay in that group. Jesus also was entreated time and time and time again. But where wisdom comes into place was Jesus had to know what his priorities were. But never did Jesus ever tell anyone no. If you came to Jesus and asked him to heal you, 
Jesus never told them no. Think of the centurion. Jesus knew that he was not at that time omnipresent. He could only be in one place at one time. So he says, please come, heal my servant. And Jesus said, go. He's already healed. He couldn't go and be with him, but he did not tell him no. And yes, number four, Jesus was steadfast. And the opposite of steadfast is wavering. Despite the cries, despite the tears of those who watched Jesus hanging on the cross, he would not come down. A child is crawling up in a tree and and the mother and the father is yelling, come on down, come on down, you're going to hurt your life. I know what I'm doing. Please come down, you're tearing me apart. I know what I'm doing, I can climb. And you watch them climb that tree and it's like, where did you learn that? They cried for Jesus, come down off that cross. I can't. Where did you learn that, Jesus? Where did you learn to hang on the cross? Jesus was in good physical shape because of three years of walking. The only thing I ever found that when he rode was on a donkey. To show a sign of humility. They cried and cheered, Hosanna, Hosanna. But Jesus was in good shape. But how do you practice suffering? How do you practice being tortured? And finally, I just want to say this. Jesus was about going beyond duty. Jesus always went above and beyond whatever his call was. In John chapter 6, verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they who would not believe and those who would betray him. And in verse 71, he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him being one of the 12. So how does this talk about going above and beyond? Jesus knew who Judas was before he even chose him. And your only hope, Judas, is to follow me in my ministry. Jesus could have easily said, depart from me. When you get your act together, then you can follow me. Then you can be my disciple. But Jesus said, no, come, come next to me and I'm going to train you. I'm going to teach you. But whose decision was it to go the other way? Was it Jesus' fault that Jesus did what he did? No. What better life could you have than to walk with Jesus for over three years? If you go to, if you go to college for four years... And in your fourth year, you drop out. Guess what? It's your parents' fault, not yours. It's the instructors. It's the professor's fault because they gave me too much work. It's never my fault. It is never my fault that I fail. It's always somebody else's. Amen? Amen? Selah? 
It's on me. Judas had his chance. He knew right from wrong. It wasn't enough just to be obedient. It wasn't enough just to walk with Christ. He had to follow Christ. And there's a difference. He walked with Jesus, but he did not follow Jesus. In Luke chapter 7, verse 17, and I'm almost done. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk. And afterwards, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded of him? I think not. And so likewise, when you have done those things which are commanded of you, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do.